Welcome to PwC IFRS Talks, your source of all things IFRS, technical accounting matters, business issues, current standard setting and regulatory updates. I'm your host, Ruth Preedy. In this episode, we're looking at Q3 reminders. And so I'm joined again by our three topic team leaders. I'm joined by Sandra Thompson, Tony DeBell and Larry Dodak. So let's start with you, Sandra. I think you're going to do a bit of a whistle-stop tour through IFRS 16. Um, what are your hot topics? What are you discussing at the moment? Yeah, thank you, Ruth. Um, so because IFRS 16, very nearly here now, long time coming. Um, and I think I'm going to focus on sort of the top three practical implementation questions we're getting. So I'm going to talk about lease term and the effect of extension and termination options. Um, determining the discount rate, in particular incremental borrowing rate, and then finally, what do you need to be thinking about for 2018 year ends? Because that's what we get to first. Yeah, exactly, which is not long away. Um, so let's start, let's go through each in turn. Let's start, what are the challenges with lease term? Yeah, so obviously getting your lease term right is important. Yeah. If you have a longer lease term, you're going to get a bigger right of use asset, bigger lease liability, bigger depreciation, bigger interest expense. And from a practical perspective, a lot of leases do have either extension options or termination options, so this is a very common question. In terms of what to think about, well, I think the first thing to say is it doesn't matter from an IFRS 16 perspective whether something's called a termination option or it's called an extension option, you'll get the same framework, the same approach. So if I take an example, you could have a lease that it could be called a five-year lease with a termination option at year two, or conversely, it could be a two-year lease with a three-year extension option. Those two in IFRS 16 terms are assessed in the same way. You should come out with the same answer. The next thing to note, however, is it does matter who has the termination or extension okay. option. And there are different rules where that's held by the lessor as opposed to when that's by the lessee. So let's start with the case where it's a lessor that has the termination or extension option. What the standard says is you include those options in the term of the lease. And what I mean by that is if in my example, it was the lessor that could either have the right to terminate my five-year lease at year two, or indeed the right to extend the two-year lease up to five years. Yeah. In both cases, you'd end up with a five-year lease term. So you include that longer period in the term of the lease. On the other hand, if it's the lessee, that has the termination or extension option, then you look at what's reasonably certain to happen. So is it reasonably certain the lessee will extend? Alternatively, is it reasonably certain that the um, and that the lessee would not exercise it, its termination option? Next question, obviously, is what's reasonably certain? <laughs> yeah, and um, we're good accountants, so we often like a number. So yeah. is that 90%, 80%, 70%? Wouldn't we love a bright line? Well, you guess not what's one. coming next? No, there's not one. No, we're in principles-based standard. In fact, I think the, the mentality of the board was actually to get away from thinking in numerical bright-line terms to actually considering all of the facts and circumstances and a whole range of factors. So that might include things like, well, what's the term of the option? If it's an option to extend, is it a below market rate? Um, think about complementary assets. So if a lessee has just refitted a property yeah. and significant leasehold improvements, they're probably not going to exercise a termination option that's there in the short term. Past practice, that's always a good starting point. Obviously, things can change from past practice. Um, are there any subleases? So my example, if the lessee had entered into a sublease for five years, pretty sure they're yeah. going to want the head lease for the five <laughs> years as well. <laughs> Yeah. Any restrictions on options um, can only be exercised in certain circumstances. Are there any penalties attached? 
Think about the importance of the asset. Is this the entity's main operating site, for example? Is it a flagship store in the case of a retailer? And then sort of non-monetary factors. I think my good starting point is what's in the business plan. Yeah. So if the business plan envisages this asset being there for five years, that's a, a good indicator. You might contrast that with a situation where an entity is going into a new territory or a new business venture. Perhaps the board said, well, we'll run this for a couple of years, see how it's going. Then it might not be reasonably certain they would exercise. So you can see a whole range of factors. Yeah, it's nice. really take a step back, think about it holistically and ask lots of questions. I'm afraid not one magic bright line answer. Ooh. Well, lots for us to discuss, I suppose. You always explain everything so lovely, Sarah. I wish you could just like sit and explain to me the whole life for us, but you know, we could just have a long Oh, we could be that. here all day. I love we talking could. about leases. <laughs> okay, so I think real great thing to say the lease term is um, look at is it lessee or lessor and then you gave us some really good sort of practical things that we can get our heads around there. Okay, then moving on, your second point is discount rates. Mm, yeah, another key practical yeah. question. So having got your lease term and got your lease payments, you then need to discount yeah. them. Um, IFRS 16 actually has two different discount rates in it from the lessee's perspective. So you start with what's called the rate implicit in the lease. Um, but IFRS 16 says if that's not readily determinable for the lessee, then you go to the lessee's incremental borrowing rate. And the stand itself envisages that there will be many cases where that, that rate implicit in the lease is not readily determinable. Yeah. So often in practice, we are getting to incremental borrowing rate. Now, what does that mean? Well, it's the rate at which the lessee could borrow for a similar asset, um, similar term, similar value, similar security, similar economic environment. So you know, what would the lessee borrow if it was funding with a borrowing? Now, finally, theory. Yeah. Again, <laughs> how do you actually... It sounds easy. How do you actually do it in practice? And I think we're seeing lessees do one of two things. Um, so they're either starting with an actual borrowing rate and then adjusting to make it specific for the lease. Or conversely, they're starting with something like a government bond yield, so not their own borrowing rate, yeah. and then again adjusting. And the important thing is to adjust. So what kind of adjustments might you see? Let's suppose we start with the lessee's actual borrowing rate. Let's go back to my five-year lease. Yeah. Let's suppose that's a sterling lease of a UK asset. Um, and the lessee has an actual borrowing, but it's a 10-year US dollar borrowing. Yeah. What adjustments might you make? Well, clearly, 10-year borrowing versus five-year lease, you've got to adjust for that. Oh, yeah. Look at the, 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 if you like, the yield curve. It's US dollar borrowing versus a sterling lease, so you'd need to adjust for that. How might you do that? Well, you might look at something like a cross-currency swap that could swap your 10-year dollar borrowing into a five-year sterling borrowing. How much would that cost you? And put that into the rate. Similar security. Now, um, let's suppose my actual borrowing is fully secured. If I was to borrow against the five-year right of use asset, it's unlikely a bank would lend me all five years or the whole amount secured. Yeah. So it's likely to be a blend of a, a secured and an unsecured rate. Maybe they'd lend me 60% secured and then the rest would be unsecured. So you'd have to adjust for that. Um, the value of the asset, if this is a very big asset, bank might charge you more for a borrowing for that. So you can see the kind of adjustments. If we then flip over and say, well, if you start with a government bond yield, well, hopefully you can get a five-year sterling government bond yield. So yeah. there's two adjustments you don't need to make. You've got the right, the right term and you've got the right currency. However, it's a government bond yield. Government bonds are unsecured. Yeah. So you'd need to adjust the fact that if you were to get a, a borrowing, it would have some degree of security about it. And of course, it's a government bond yield. Um, most corporates can't borrow a, a 
as good a rate as a government can. So again, you'd need to adjust for that. So you get the flavour. Um, what we often see in practice is that uh, an entity has a framework. So for a certain kind of leased asset, they'll do one or other. But the important thing is to make sure you then do have suitable adjustments. So if you've got, for example, you're leasing a lot of cars, but they have different lengths of lease, you need to not just use one discount rate for them all, you need to take that into yeah. consideration. So you need a framework around where's your starting point, these are the type of adjustments, but enough flexibility for you to make it specific to yeah. the lease as yeah, well. Yeah, exactly. Okay, perfect. And then lastly, what should people, what should they be doing now, thinking about now? Yeah, well, obviously we're coming up to 2018 year end, so... It's almost out. It's almost out. Um, there's a couple of particular things to think about for 2018. So IS17 requires um, disclosures of operating lease commitments. That's not a new requirement. It's yeah. been there for some time. So why am I talking about it for 2018? Um, once you get to 2019 and into IFRS 16, um, if you're using the simplified transition approach, which I'm not going to today, yeah. um, then there is a requirement to explain the differences between what was in your IS 17 lease commitments notes in 2018 and what goes on your balance sheet in okay. 2019. And indeed, even if you're not in that simplified transition approach, the market tends to be looking for that, that reconciliation almost. Um, so it's a good year to get your IS 17 note right and not to be embarrassed next year. Um, so what might some of the, the things to look out for? Well, make sure your IS-17 note actually has all relevant leases in it. Yeah. Um, you haven't missed some leases along the way. Um, think about lease term. It's basically the same between IS-17 and IFRS-16. So have you done the right assessment of extension and termination options, the issue I talked about? Um, your operating lease commitment note should be excluding non-lease components. So if you've got one contract that has both a lease and perhaps some some goods or services embedded in it, yeah. you should have only the lease the lease element of that. Yeah. So so and then think about processes and controls to make sure your I seventeen note actually is right. I should say there are some valid differences. The, num the two numbers won't necessarily be the same. You've got to discount your yeah. lease commitments to get to the I for sixteen number. Um, you don't have to capitalise low-value assets, at least low-value assets or short-term leases. So it won't be the same, but make sure the differences you've got are ones you'll be able to explain next year. So that's the first thing. That's a good tip. Yeah. Um, and the second thing is the IS8 disclosure about standards that are not yet effective. Yeah. Um, and the idea of that disclosure is to give the reader of the account some information that's relevant to assessing the impact. And I think previously we've seen quite generic descriptions about what IFRS 16 requires and that leases will go on balance yeah, sheets. see my operating lease commitments now. Yeah, yeah, maybe some of that as well, <laughs> maybe not. It's the case maybe. Um, but as we get closer to the application date, we'd expect more granular, more detailed disclosures. So particularly for a company that does quarterly reporting, they like to bring their year-end financial statements yeah. out very shortly before they actually get to Q1 and put the leases on their balance sheet. So... What is the impact? Can you quantify it, if not in as a single number, at least as a range? Um, and then some of the, the choices you might make, there's a three different transition methods. Which one have you gone to? Um, have you used the exemptions, for example, for leases of low-value assets or short-term leases? What practical expedients have you used? And the key judgments and assumptions. So this term would be one, but there yeah. are others. So make it entity-specific and as low as you can go. <laughs> Perfect. Great tips from Sandra. Thank you very much. Over to you, Tony. So, Tony, we're going to look a little bit about what's been going on at the IFRIC. Give us the latest. What do we need to know for Q3? So, we had a very full and exciting interpretations committee meeting. We were at uh, Westbury Circus, the ISB's new head office oh, yeah. for the first time. Uh, and we had a pretty full two-day meeting. So, there were six tentative agenda decisions. 
there were four final agenda decisions, and we also spent time talking about cryptographic assets and initial coin offerings, and some time talking about accounting policies. So it was a very full That's meeting. Like an exciting day for yeah. accounting. I'm just going to pull out uh, a couple of topics for, yeah. for, the, for, for the purposes of this podcast. I'll start with one of the final agenda decisions, which was to do with um, IS7 and how you determine cash and cash equivalents for the purposes of the cash flow statement. So you might remember that um, IS7 says that a bank overdraft that's repayable on demand and is an integral part of an entity's cash management can be deducted from cash, equi- cash and cash equivalents for the purposes of the cash flow statement. Yeah. Uh, still gets presented separately on the balance sheet, but it can be deducted for the purposes of the cash flow statement. Uh, and the question that we had was, uh, well, what about very short-term borrowings? Yeah. So maybe a company has a very short-term borrowing. Maybe it's got um, seven days' notice, or it's just for a for a term of fourteen days, and it is an integral part of cash management. Yeah. Can it be treated in the same way as an overdraft? Uh, and the committee looked at IS seven and said, mm, mm. IS seven says repayable on demand, and even if it's only got a term of seven days, it is not repayable on demand. Yeah. Uh, and so, therefore, uh, borrowings of that nature can't be deducted from cash and cash equivalents for the purposes of the cash flow statement. So, okay, interesting one. Mm-hmm. So, one to work out, and that's a final agenda. That's decision. a final agenda decision. Okay. And what about anything in the pipeline, anything tentative that we should yeah. be looking for? Yeah, I think there's um, one of the tentative agenda decisions in particular stands out and has already attracted a certain amount of interest and comment, uh, primarily in the oil and gas space. Uh, and so this is uh, looking at a new standard and uh, a reasonably well-established standard. And it's the intersection between IFRS 16 um, leases and IFRS 11 for joint arrangements. So uh, one form of a joint arrangement is um, a joint operation. And often you'll find there is no statutory entity in a joint operation. There will be uh, a group of uh, entities that will share control, have joint control over an activity, but they don't set up an entity. So that means there isn't an entity for the joint operation that can contract with third parties. Uh, If the joint operation requires an asset and decides to lease that asset, then what will often happen is that um, one of the operators will enter a contract with a lessor. Let's call that the lead operator that will enter a contract with a lessor, will sign the contract, will be responsible for all the payments. The question is whether that operator, the lead operator, should account for the entire liability or should it reflect the fact that it's in a joint arrangement and shares joint control and say, well, no, I just it, it'll just account for its share. Okay. So the committee looked at it and decided that uh, the lead operator has to account for the arrangement it has entered into. So it is the sole signatory uh, and it has the primary responsibility for the lease obligation and therefore it has to account for it. All of it. All of it. Uh, the fact that it um, has a joint operating agreement with the other operators under which it gets reimbursed doesn't change the fact it has the primary responsibility for that obligation and you can't do the accounting on the basis that there is joint and several liability when there is not. So you account for what you've got, the lead operator that signs the lease as the sole signatory has the primary responsibility, accounts for the entire lease and then accounts separately for its joint operating agreement with the other operators. That's out for comment. Um, 60 days, it was published towards the end of September so it's the middle end 
end of November that the comment period will close. Uh, obviously, companies, anybody who is interested, uh, feel free to write us a letter. Brilliant. So anyone listening that thinks that affects them, get more IT into the effort. Thank you for joining us, Tony. Thank you. Okay, over to you, Larry. Is there any other tentative agenda decisions people should be aware of for Q3? Absolutely. The Interpretation Committee discussed a couple of topics related to separate financial statements dealing with investments and subsidiaries accounted for at cost. The first scenario deals with the partial disposal of the subsidiary, where the entity loses control and retains an interest that will be accounted for under I4S9. So think like a 10% investment going yeah. forward. First, any difference between the cost and the fair value in the investment and subsidiary would be recorded in profit and loss. The committee concluded that the subsequent changes in fair value of the retained interest could be recorded through OCI pursuant to the election in IFRS 9, provided the entity made this election when it first applies IFRS 9 when it loses control of its sub. Now, the second scenario deals with basically the inverse of the above where an entity obtains control of a subsidiary through a step acquisition, where the initial investment is recorded under IFRS 9. Think again, that same 10% investment. The first question was, how does the entity determine the cost of its investment in the subsidiary? Is it the consideration paid for the additional interest plus the fair value of the initial interest at date control of the subsidiaries obtained? This is often referred to as the fair value as deemed cost approach. Or is it simply the consideration paid for the additional interest plus the consideration paid for the initial interest? And this is often referred to as the accumulated cost approach. The committee concluded that a reasonable reading of the literature could result in an application of either approach as long as you apply it consistently. The second question relates to those entities applying the accumulated cost approach. What do you do with the difference between cost and fair value? The committee concluded that any difference must be recorded to the P&L. And that would be true even if, prior to obtaining control, the entity was taking fair value changes to OCI. The theory there being that prior to obtaining control, taking fair value changes to OCI is a specific exception in IFRS 9, and no such exception exists for this transactional difference. Um, we think this could be a change in practice for certain entities. So this is a tentative decision. Again, comments are due by November 19th. So if this is something that could impact your clients, you may want to have a conversation with them. Okay, brilliant. Thank you very much. So again, tentative decision. Comments are, you can comment in now if you uh, feel very strongly about that. Uh, if not, watch this space. Thanks for joining us, Larry, Tony and Sandra. A great update there for Q3. If you'd like further information, please look on PwC Inform. Thank you for tuning in. I'm your host, Ruth Reedy. Happy accounting. The preceding programme was brought to you by PricewaterhouseCoopers LLP. This content is for general information purposes and is not a substitute for consultation with professional advisors.